Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Mike Chinoy, the former CNN International Senior Asia Correspondent. He's currently a Hong Kong-based non-resident senior fellow at the University of Southern California's U.S.-China Institute. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on with us. And, we, of course, we have to start with news in Hong Kong uh, with the new security law now in effect. The first arrest has been made in Hong Kong. Give us a kind of an overview of, of the situation now uh, across Hong Kong as it relates to the implementation of this new law. Well, the law came into effect on uh, July 1st, and it's really a, a very, very sweeping uh, law. It stipulates four major offenses, separatism, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign governments. And it's still a little bit unclear, in fact, how it's going to be implemented. But it's a function, I think, of China getting uh, both very alarmed and very fed up with what was happening in Hong Kong over the past year. Uh, I think Beijing decided that uh, this is really a kind of a rebellious peripheral territory that has to be brought under central control after months of street disorders and anti-government protests and so on. So you have this very sweeping ordinance, and we simply don't know how it's going to be implemented, but it does allow the central authorities in Beijing a remarkable degree of latitude in what they do. The Chinese authorities will be able to station security personnel here. They'll be able to uh, bring people across the border for trial in China. Um, And because the terms are so sweeping and so vague, I think uh, it's it's created a great deal of uncertainty about how Hong Kong's legal system will work, uh, to what extent uh, freedoms that have previously been enshrined here will continue uh, to operate. So I, I think it's fair to say there's a great deal of concern and anxiety about how this is going to play out. We're talking with Mike Chinoy, who is currently based in Hong Kong. Mike is the former CNN senior Asia correspondent and currently in Hong Kong uh, with the University of Southern California's U.S.-China Institute. Mike, has there been any discussion that you have seen uh, any interest on the side of uh, Carrie Lam and the Hong Kong government or anybody else to put some more definition around this law? Uh, As you mentioned, it's it's a sweeping law, but we don't really know really where the out-of-bounds or the inbound markers are on this. Any, Any discussion that there might at some point be more Uh, definition given to this? Well, Hong Kong authorities have tried to signal uh, in general that people shouldn't be worried, that this is only going to be aimed at a small minority. But in point of fact, uh, it's vagueness, I think, and, and in fact, there have been some some Chinese officials who've said as much, the vagueness is deliberate. It's designed to make people scared. It's designed to make people that Beijing sees as rebels and uh, people who want to separate Hong Kong from mainland China scared and worried uh, and throw them off balance, not let them know where this is going, precisely to serve the purpose uh, of intimidation. I think it's important, you know, when you think about it from from Beijing's point of view, uh, Xi Jinping has... Uh, during his tenure in power, really sort of consolidated central control, tightened up internal political controls uh, in the mainland. And I think uh, for the Chinese Communist Party to see people in Hong Kong uh, protesting, and not just protesting, last summer and last fall, you had people burning the Chinese flag, trashing the Chinese national emblem. You had people waving flags, calling for 
Hong Kong independent, independence, which of course is a completely impractical non-starter. And even though that was a small minority of the very large number of people who were protesting, who I think wanted more, uh, simply more representative government and a more responsive government, it touched a very raw nerve. So I think China sees Hong Kong as a kind of rebellious territory that has to be brought under control. And this is a tool that gives them tremendous leeway uh, to to uh, achieve that outcome. Mike, you have been covering the events in Asia since the mid-70s, uh, all of the seminal events, including the death of Mao, the, the handover itself in 97, uh, among many other elections and other political uh, stories. How does this particular twist, the, the implementation of this law, how does it fit into the arc of what you see as as major stories across Asia that you have seen unfold? I think this is really a historic turning point on on many levels. Of course, it's 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 historic because uh, it's a fundamental change uh, in the way Hong Kong is governed, from which there is no going back. And I think it will fundamentally alter uh, life in Hong Kong, Hong Kong's international role as a as a business center, uh, and and it will draw Hong Kong much more into the the, the orbit of, of the Chinese mainland and make it uh, over time much more of a Chinese city. But I think in, if you look at this in the context of China's overall external behavior, I think Beijing feels that uh, it's, it's got the power to push for what it sees as its interests. And it's, it's, it's the old phrase that the, the Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping talked about, biding your time and hide your capabilities, take a, play a low-key international role. That's gone. China has got interests, and it's going to push very assertively uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, defend or, or promote those interests. So you see Chinese behavior in the South China Sea. You see Chinese behavior uh, with the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands with Japan. Mm. You see a much tougher line with Taiwan. You see uh, tensions on the Sino-Indian border. You see a much more assertive diplomatic behavior by Chinese officials, the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, where Chinese diplomats have been much more aggressive and outspoken. Uh, so I think this is a, a kind of real turning point in terms of how China engages with the world. And I think one of the things that's going to be interesting is to see uh, whether it works from Beijing's point of view, whether it triggers uh, pushback elsewhere. And uh, uh, I do think it, it has the potential to lead to a broader, uh, more tense relationship between China and, and other parts of the world, depending on how these events play out. At the European Union, uh, the U.S., I mean, many countries around the world have, have lashed out at the implementation, the speedy implementation of this without any discussion. So that is, you know, clearly uh, on record for many countries uh, across the world. And, and several weeks ago, before the law was implemented, uh, I had Tara Joseph on the show, the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. And, and even at that time, before it had been implemented, there was great concern on the part of business people in Hong Kong, what it was going to do to the banking community, to the trading community, you know, changing the status of uh, of Hong Kong as the U.S. has already done, partially in response to uh, this this law. Uh, from a business perspective, what do you see happening now going forward? Will this law impact the business perspective, or is uh, the, the U.S. stand on uh, Hong Kong special status more of a factor than this law? I think there are a lot of things – 
uh, at play here that are threatening Hong Kong's status. The, the, Hong Kong is unquestionably a kind of front line in the U.S.-China trade war and, and sure. the broader tensions between China and the United States. I think there's sort of two uh, conflicting impulses in the business community here. On the one hand, I think uh, there, there, are, there are people in companies who, 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 who want to see this as, as nothing more than a blip or even something that's good in that it will pre- prevent the kind of street disorders and disruption of, of the last year. But the sweeping nature of the law, the fact that it's so vague about what can be construed as subverting or challenging state power raises questions about if, a, if an analyst at a company writes something negative about a, a, Chinese, a Chinese entity from an investment perspective, does that cross the line? What kinds of pressures will be brought on Hong Kong companies to do what, for example, Cathay Pacific did last year, which is essentially fire anybody seen as critical or outspoken? Mm. So I do think there are really serious questions and concerns, and, and we, we simply don't know the answers because it's, it's too early, but it's certainly valid to raise serious questions. We're speaking with Mike Chinoy, the former CNN senior Asia correspondent, currently a senior fellow at the University of Southern California's U.S.-China Institute, talking to us from Hong Kong. Mike, if we can shift gears just a little bit, because one of your other specialties has been North Korea. You've been there 17 times over the years, reported extensively on it. Just the other day, Kim Jong-un said that there's no need to talk to the U.S. anymore going forward about any of the nuclear issues. And, and of course, two years ago, we had the summit here in Singapore between Kim and Trump, which was uh, a whole lot of nothing, as it turned out. What are you seeing right now uh, as trends happening uh, in North Korea, either uh, by itself or with South Korea? Of course, we've seen uh, Kim Jong-un's sister now take a little bit more of a a front role uh, in recent weeks uh, in an international sense. What are you seeing from your perspective? Well, if the world didn't need another trouble spot uh, right now, but I think uh, the Korean Peninsula has been sort of out of the headlines to a significant degree with everything else going on. But it's very troubling, the dynamic that's at play there on several levels. One is that at the end of last year, Kim Jong-un made very clear that, from his perspective, North Korea was done with uh, dealing with the Trump administration and with dealing with South Korea. And so you've had an increasingly tough posture from North Korea, uh, particularly targeting the South. Because, and I think that's it's a function partly of frustration. Pyongyang's point of view that their efforts at diplomacy didn't lead to a reduction in sanctions, which, which are hurting the North Korean economy. But then you also have serious questions about Kim Jong-un's health. He disappeared for several weeks earlier in the spring. He's reappeared since then, but the number of public appearances since that reappearance have been much, much fewer than the same period last year. Uh, He's in his late 30s. He's very obese. He's a chain smoker. Uh, when you watch him, uh, he kind of waddles. His, he, do, he doesn't look like a healthy guy. <laughs> and there were questions about what would happen to North Korea if, if, if he died. Will his sister take over? Will there be a power struggle? Could there be instability? And you combine this with an erosion of the U.S.-South Korea alliance because of Donald Trump's attitude and behavior and demands that South Korea pay more for the privilege of hosting American troops. So you've got a weakened U.S.-South Korea alliance, uncertainty in North Korea in the context of a broader U.S.-China kind of emerging Cold War. So the Korean Peninsula, I think, remains a serious danger spot. 
Over the past year, we've seen ongoing tests, the ballistic missile tests coming out of North Korea, at, at, frankly, at an alarming rate. And that was one of the things that was supposed to stop after Kim uh, and Trump met. The indications are, of course, that they're pushing ahead with their nuclear weapons program. Uh, how concerning are these developments in terms of the testing uh, that has been, uh, at least the visible testing we can see outside that's been going on? Well, the North Koreans never stopped making fissile material. Uh, all they really did because of the diplomacy with Trump was uh, they stopped nuclear tests and they haven't staged a long-range missile test. Mm -hmm. uh, I think both of those could conceivably happen. But even if they don't, uh, in this period with no diplomatic progress, the North is simply uh, strengthening its nuclear and missile arsenal, which gives it at a minimum a tool to intimidate South Korea and deter the U.S., even if they don't actually use them. Do you sense that there's any appetite on, this, on the part of the U.S. to engage uh, with North Korea before the elections in November? A Trump administration officials signaled that that's a possibility, but the North has said they're not interested. I think the North sees Donald Trump as kind of empty shell who's really in it for the headlines and the photo ops for his own political purposes and isn't going to deal with what the North thinks is important. So I think Pyongyang is going to reject that. Thanks to Mike Chinoy, former CNN senior Asia correspondent, uh, currently in Hong Kong uh, as a senior fellow with the University of Southern California's U.S.-China Institute. Appreciate your comments today, Mike. Thanks a lot, Ben. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.